You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 82, where we discuss all things iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch related, and more. On the mic is Neil Hughes. Hey, how's it going, Victor? It's amazing, man. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. <laughs> there you have it. Neil is okay. Nice and busy. Good. So we've got some deals coming up. We've got a 13-inch MacBook Air. That's the 1.6 gigahertz, 4 gigabyte, and 256 gigabyte. That's 4 gigabyte of RAM, 256 gigabytes of storage for $849. There's also a $750 discount off the 27-inch iMac 5K, which is pretty cool. And also $150 off the 128-gig iPhone 6S Plus. So all of these deals are available through our... Apple Insider friend and Apple authorized reseller B&H. They are slashing these prices and there's also no sales tax for orders shipped outside of New York. Go ahead and go to the link in the show notes here and check out these deals and you too can save all kinds of crazy money. Neil? Yes. Do you want an iPhone 7? Uh, here's a, a strange admission. I really want an iPhone 7 Plus. Whoa. <laughs> now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, back up a step, because you are, you are the guy for whom the ideal size was the iPhone SE. You love that iPhone 5 form factor. Actually, so I, I, I believe that the ideal form factor is actually the iPhone 4 with the 3.5-inch screen. Okay, so the iPhone 4 <laughs> is your ideal form factor. What are you doing with an iPhone 7 Plus? In Camera, man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about... Uh, you know, until they announce it, I can't really say for sure. But what I've seen so far, uh, you know, the possibilities with that camera are really exciting. Wait, wait, wait. But we, we saw a piece of news that suggests that the iPhone 7, that is the 4.7-inch screen model, will have optical image stabilization in its camera. Yeah. Um, they have it in software currently on the iPhone 6S. Uh, and they and have, it, they in have it in hardware on the iPhone 6S Plus. Right. And what so we're talking they, about is the idea that it's built into hardware for what's going to be the 4.7-inch model going forward. Right. So, I mean, that's a nice upgrade. But what we're looking at with the leaks and all the claims out there is a revolutionary uh, rethinking of the camera with the iPhone 7 Plus. And that is not going to be on the smaller 4.7-inch model. So that's why it excites me. Now, the idea of carrying around a giant phone I hate, but – you know, there's issues with just simple physics at that point. You can only fit so much into a smaller device. So uh, it makes sense that the larger phone gets some better features than the smaller one would have. Um, so, you know, this is something hopefully two, three years down the road, maybe one year, they, they take that awesome camera that's going to go in the 7 Plus and put it in, you know, an iPhone 8 or whatever. But um, as it stands right now, it looks like only the larger phone is going to get this fancy camera, and that's the one that I'd like to get. Because I take photos all the time with my phone, and I want the photos to look as good as possible. Okay, so here's what I recommend you do. I recommend you go to your tailor, and you take your sport coat with you, and you have him stitch a pocket into the lining of your sport coat to hold your iPhone 7 Plus. I, the size of the phone bothers me, but I've said it before. If there was an easy way to switch your Apple Watch between two phones, I could see myself picking a phone based on uh, my use case for that day. Uh, that's a little extreme, but not that extreme. I mean, there are plenty of people out there with you know work phones and personal phones and stuff like that who might want to switch between them. So, 
Yeah. And now they, they currently understand the concept of having one phone and switching watches. You're, you're asking for the reverse. Right. Well, I'd like to be able to switch both. I'd like to be able to switch. I'd like for my watch to be more independent, basically, and not be as dependent on my phone to do everything. Because as it stands right now, it's much like having the first iPhone or iPad. You have to tether it to, it used to be a computer. Now you have to tether your watch to your phone, and it installs and uninstalls from there. It updates from there. It does all that. I'd like to see that whole process eliminated. I want to see it back up on its own. Of course, in the current iteration of it, it doesn't really have the, the hardware, the horsepower necessary to do that, or nor the software. Um, so you know, we're inevitably going there. At some point, your watch is going to operate on its own and probably connect to a Mac or a, an Android phone or really whatever you want it to connect to. Um, and to do whatever you wanted to do separate from a, from an iPhone. Uh, that, that day is not here yet, but hopefully hopefully at one point. Yeah, well, I wanted to, to mention the date. We were talking about the iPhone 7 before we sort of wandered off onto the watch for a moment there. And the date for the iPhone 7 could be September 23rd. Mark your calendars. Yeah, I mean, they usually do uh, the launch about a week and a half after they announce it which has been the way it is for years. But then last year, it was a two-and-a-half-week wait. So the rumor is that they're going to hold an event um, after Labor Day on Wednesday, September 7th, and that it may launch. Here, here's the way it's going to go. They're going to announce it probably that Wednesday. It's either going to come out the following Friday or the Friday after that, two-and-a-half two weeks later, essentially. So the dates you're looking at to have one in your hand, most likely, are September 16th or September 23rd. Right. And so the reason that why we're suggesting the 23rd is that there's a leak from an AT&T document that talks about when they're going to need employee overtime or it when they're going to be speculation on their staffing. part. They could be reading the tea leaves and saying, OK, rumor is September 7th. Last year, Apple took two and a half weeks. They they don't staff up based on speculation. They they staff because that would be a, a huge expense of of pay for manpower. They, they staff up based around actual things that are very likely to happen or are definitely going to happen. So the, the first thing that they've got here is they've got a, in the, in the leak, in the document, they've got September 9th, they need two additional employees at a small store for three hours of total work, or a large store is two employees, also one and a half hours, of three hours of total work. And what they're doing there is, is that's a, um, a merchandising reset where you know, you want to rearrange store signage to announce that there is the new phone coming and this is the place to get it kind of thing. And then on the 23rd, they want an additional two employees or an additional two to three employees, depending on store size, for, again, an additional three hours of total work. And so that's probably adjusting the in-store displays and putting out the, uh, the display phones and everything else to handle that release. I mean, yeah, I mean, we will see. Stranger things have happened than a company making plans based on Apple's rumors. I mean, holy crap, the entire industry makes plans based on Apple's rumors. Well, you raise a good point. I mean, I uh, I was going to hit on this later, but it's an easy segue, right? Target missed their financial goals, and they're blaming it on Apple device sales. <laughs> I, I'm surprised that 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 Target really sells that many Apple devices, frankly. But whatever. No, tar- Target. I bet sells loads of iPad Minis, and that's pretty much a dead product. I mean, th- when when you go into a Target, they always have the iPad Mini on a promotion, right? Two forty nine this or two forty nine plus a fifty dollar gift card or whatever the deal is. They they've got that product on promotion all the time. 
um, more frequently. The iPad uh, lineup is a very interesting evolution, uh, is the way I guess to put it. Because you think about first, there was one iPad, right, and and it was nice. And then everybody's like, well, it's a little heavy. I want something smaller. I want something, you know, it's a little easier to tote around. So then the iPad mini in many ways became kind of the flagship iPad, right? It got... Um, the, well, it, it got started a- life as an iPad 2 in smaller clothing. And, and by the time it became the 3, it totally made sense. Yeah, it, uh, you know, it got a new design that eventually came to the bigger iPad and all that. But it was, it was thin. It was light. It was nice. And then something happened along the way where the 9.7-inch iPad got really thin and really light, and then the iPhone Plus series came around, and the iPad mini kind of found itself caught in the middle, and there, I don't know if there's less of a market for it or if Apple just doesn't really want to compete in that $300 to $400 range or what. Um, but for as little as the iPad has evolved since it launched, um, and it has not evolved as much as I would like, it's still the, the product lineup has evolved quite a bit, where, as Apple kind of tries to find its footing. So now you see you have two iPad Pro models, which lead the lineup. And last quarter, the average selling price of the iPad and the revenue went up, even though sales were down, just because people are buying six, seven, eight hundred $800, up to $1,200 iPads now with, the, with the, the configurations and all that, adding the accessories and everything. So the iPad, especially with the introduction of the iPad Pro and the kind of demotion of the iPad Mini, is a very different lineup. And so you're right. It makes sense. I mean, if if Target was pushing a lot of iPad Minis and that product is kind of passe now, whether it's a consumer choice or Apple's choice, uh, I could yeah, I could see where that might hurt them. That, that makes sense. Yeah, and they blamed the, the sales decrease on Apple. They blamed it on their drop in grocery sales. They blamed it on people not responding well to the Target Pharmacy being bought out by CVS. Um, and, and all those things are true. I didn't like that Target Pharmacy got bought by CVS. I still do the grocery shopping there. The, the thing that I would observe about the iPad mini as a product is that – and and I've I've got several. I you know I've I've owned the first version of it. I owned the second version of it. I haven't owned the three with Touch ID just because I haven't felt like I needed to have it on an iPad yet. But um, it's it's in a weird place size wise, as you note. The deal for me is that it's not quite powerful enough and not quite big enough to do all the things that I would like to do. And so I either go back to my phone or go to the computer. I I I, I, I don't. I've never saw the appeal of the iPad Mini. It just wasn't for me. Um, I want a nice. What was the same appeal as the MacBook Air was for me, which was ultra portable computing. Yeah, I mean, I I see why people would want it. It depends on what you do. If you do a lot of reading in bed, for example, which I don't do, but or even by the poolside, I guess iPad Mini probably a great product for you. Um, For me, not so much. You know, it's more of my. It's kind of my casual, my couch computer. You know, my my Mac stays pretty much just sitting on a desk, plugged in all the time. So. Portability, while nice when I do have to travel, for 99% of the time is not a big issue for me when it comes to my my Mac um, and really uh, to my iPad as well. But when I'm on the road, my iPad is so light and so convenient that I tend to just not use my Mac when I'm on the road. I tend to just use my iPad because it's easier to carry. It's more convenient. It's nicer. Um, the, the, the iPad Pro size is kind of that sweet spot for me. Um, just, it's a big enough canvas for me to really get stuff done and to, to appreciate the content on it. Um, and even when you're using a soft keyboard, the, the space of the keyboard and everything like that is just, it's, it's a pleasure to use, but I see why people wouldn't want an iPad that big. It makes sense to me. Um, but that's, what's nice about having options. Totally. 
Now, it, with the small rumor, the, the iPhone 7 is expected to continue the existing naming conventions. There will be no pro model. We're just going to stick with iPhone 7 and iPhone 7 Plus. Yeah, I could go either way on that rumor. I could see them not changing the name because the design is unchanged. I could also see them changing the name because they say, well, maybe it has the same design, but look at all this great stuff that we did on the inside. Um, the reality of it is it doesn't matter. It's just branding. They don't even have to call it the iPhone. They could just call it, uh, you know, Tim Cook's pet project or whatever they want to call it and release it. It's just a name on a product. The product itself is what matters. True. Now, I, I wanted to mention, you know, we, we ran a feature all about USB-C. And this is a long feature covering the history of USB, how we got to USB-C, Thunderbolt and Thunderbolt, and how USB-C figures into Thunderbolt. It's, it's a really great article, and I highly recommend people read it. Um, the sort of the summary is, is that the idea of moving to this singular port, or these two singular ports, the USB-C port and Thunderbolt 3, lends you a situation where you've got amazingly flexible connections, right? You've got two ports that can do pretty much everything. Well, it's one port, actually, because you can do Thunderbolt 3 over USB-C. Okay. So then what happens to what was the the, the mini DisplayPort connector? We don't need it anymore? Yep. All right. Cool. So we have USB-C. So the next potential MacBook is going to have, or MacBook Pro, is going to have all USB-C connectors on it, right? That is the rumor that you're going to have uh, a thin MacBook Pro, essentially going more in the direction of a MacBook Air, meaning very thin, but not as but thin not as tapered. the tapered. Not tapered like the Air. Not tapered, but very, very thin. Um, too, too thin for traditional uh, USB ports. So um, Apple is not the type to kind of uh, hang halfway, so I would expect all USB-C on it. Um, I don't know about MagSafe. That's the one that I'm worried about. Um, I would like to see MagSafe remain, but uh, you know that's not what they're doing with the 12-inch MacBook, so maybe not. It's going to be extremely interesting to see what Apple does this fall because we had a few stories this week about USB-C. So the one you're re- referencing um, is one uh, Mike wrote about uh, uh, kind of the future of the MacBook Pro, and it's a series that we started, and you'll see more in the coming days for our readers on GPU, CPU, uh, and rumors about Touch ID and the OLED screen, the design, all that kind of stuff. We're kind of going to go in full detail for everybody who's excited about the new MacBook Pro, which is myself and yourself included. Uh, but the other story that we had on USB-C was about Intel and how they're pushing USB-C as a replacement for the headphone jack. I and was there. that is um, interesting because USB-C as a replacement for the headphone jack is going to have a bit more of an application uh, for phones than it will for computers, I think. But regardless... Uh, well, once once you do it on phones, once you have a proliferation of, of headphones that are equipped that way, then it just becomes, that's the connector. Right. And it's going to take some time. There's going to be a transition. I mean, you can still buy laptops with VGA ports on them. So let's not all kid ourselves. All the business laptops, because all the business projectors are still using it. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, Apple may go whole hog and, and ditch the headphone jack on all their devices, but headphone jacks are going to be around 
for a very long time, probably well past you and I have expired on this planet. I don't see the headphone jack <laughs> completely disappear. I mean, it's just been around for so long, and there are so many headphones out there and so many devices. I mean, it's just the way it is, right? I mean, even after this new iPhone comes out, Apple is still going to be selling legacy MacBooks and iPods and everything else with headphone jacks. This stuff is not going away anytime soon. Um, but it, the, the point I'm getting at is it'll be interesting to see if Apple's pushing Lightning as the f- replacement for the headphone jack and Intel is pushing USB-C as the replacement for the headphone jack and let's say Apple d- decides to ditch the headphone jack on their upcoming MacBook, what do you use for headphones if you need USB-C headphones for your Mac and Lightning headphones for your phone? Do you need a, a, a dongle or an adapter just to use those? Do they continue to use the legacy headphones so you only need the dongle with your phone? Do they put a female U, uh, lighting port on the Mac so you can use the same headphones with both? I, I'm sorry. My head exploded there for a moment. Um, <laughs> you, you get a Chinese USB-C hub that breaks out to a headphone port. Oh, God. Oh, God, help us all. Um, but this is this is not the first time that we've seen this kind of thing happen, right? There there are Android phones out there that use USB-C that completely ditch the headphone port and give you a USB-C to headphone dongle. It's 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 not new, but it hasn't been successful yet. We still have headphones, right? And and there was an interview that The Verge ran with that uh, with that the CEO of that Android phone handset maker. Right. And the quote was something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something to the effect of, if, if you want to do higher quality audio, and if you want to get better quality out of the thing, then this is the way to go. He, he wasn't even talking about it from a size respect. It was, it was all about the quality of the sound. Well, one of the capabilities that Intel is pushing in their promotion of USB-C as the replacement for the headphone jack is that you won't have to go through companies like Bose or... Um, uh, Dolby or anything like that in order to get quality noise canceling headphones because now you'll be able to offload that capability to the phone itself and so when you have the headphones being powered by the phone and the processing being done by the phone mm. um, now you have capabilities where for example you have a, a iPhone with two microphones on it um, and all these advanced, you know, chips and stuff in there. Uh, you think about uh, the kind of features that you can enable on those high-end headphones and the kind of quality that you can get out of them. You can now start to enable that kind of quality with headphones that don't cost as much as a set of, you know, Bose QCs or something. True. I'm really sorry about that. If I didn't do anything, she was just going to keep it up. So. Totally. Um, she's 18 years old and needs to eat. <laughs> So this transition is not going to go exactly smoothly, at least in terms of being a solution for all of our devices across all of the things right away at launch. I mean, what does Apple want to do? Do they want to play nice with these? Because the one comment that I get all the time, uh, one of our listeners uh, tweeted at me yesterday and said, why doesn't Apple just switch to USB-C on the iPhone? Uh, That'll never happen. Yeah, I mean, people are still, I mean, you can still go to the gym and find 30 pin connectors on gym machines there. People are still upset about that switch happening. It happened, what, four years ago now? That that transition was very smooth with the exception of a small hiccup for supply of connectors at the very beginning of the lightning transition. Well, and the fact that it doesn't support video out with lightning. And so all of the gym equipment that gyms around the world invested in doesn't work with your new iPhone, even with an adapter. So... You know, <laughs> they never really solved that problem. But uh, now Apple has doubled down on Lightning. Now you have a Lightning port on the Beats Pill. 
Now you have a lightning port on the Siri remote and you have a lightning connector on the Apple Pencil. And that was all released in the last year. So you're not going to you're, you're not going to be getting rid of Lightning anytime soon. Apple has made it very clear with their product moves that they're sticking with Lightning for the foreseeable future. Now, there may be a Lightning 2 that, you know, adds more capabilities with, you know, you know there were changes made to 30-pin over the years, too. Um, well, the, 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 mostly it was about pin reassignment. And because you've got all of the pins to basically do USB 3 across the uh, the Lightning connector, and because each Lightning connector has its own little ARM processor in it, there, there's not really a need for pin reassignment, and you can pretty much do anything you want to with them. Yeah, it's a very weird situation is what it boils down to. And I, I'm curious to see, and I'm not making any predictions because I really don't know. I'm curious to see how Apple handles it. Um, if I had to guess, my guess would be that they keep the headphone jack on the Mac and they get rid of it on the iPhone. And you can use your uh, regular... 3.5 headphones with uh, your Mac, and then you can use them with an adapter with your iPhone, and then you can use Bluetooth with both. Uh, the question becomes, let's say you buy a new iPhone and you have lightning ear pods, and you really want to use those with your Mac. Is there going to be a lightning to 3.5 millimeter headphone adapter to use with your Mac? Or does Apple just say, buy another set of headphones or buy our new fancy Bluetooth earbuds? I, I don't know where they're going to bridge that well, gap. That's an interesting idea. I mean, so... The, uh, the USB-C uses the connector bidirectionally, right? With with the older style USB, you had the USB-A rectangle that was at the computer, and then you had the small B side for what was other at the device side. Mm-hmm. With USB-C, you just get two USB-C connectors, and it figures out which one's the host and which one's the client. Yeah, USB-C is the future. So that's not the, that's not even plug a question. It any which way you want, and and it's no surprise that that it's very, very agnostic in terms of orientation and direction like this, because guess who was on the working group? Guess who was in the special interest group? Um, Apple participated in that. Yeah, USB-C is an inevitability. And I, I think if I had to completely speculate on this, long term, Apple is probably seeing Lightning and USB-C as their last ports. And then beyond that, the devices become completely portless. Uh, for example... Uh, you know, look at smart connector as a successor or uh, the charging on the Apple watch as a successor for how you would physically connect devices. Apple hates cables. I do too. There's clutter. There's clutter, man. I do too. They're, they're terrible. And Bluetooth isn't reliable. I mean, let's be real here. The entire, we had the rumor last week about the idea of, of Apple bringing their own wireless or, or, having some magical Bluetooth. Some successor to Bluetooth or something, maybe a proprietary thing. Let's be real. The entire reason that the smart connector exists is because Bluetooth is terrible. You're not wrong. I was on the, uh, the train the other day and there were a bunch of people on the train with me and it was just wireless interference. And I was wearing wireless headphones, Philips noise canceling headphones. They're decent headphones. They're, they're, you know, like 120 bucks or something and just cutting out, just regularly cutting out could not maintain a signal. The airwaves were full. And, yeah, you know, I'm just getting pumped with radiation from everybody's Bluetooth, and, uh, you know, nothing works. So uh, the entire reason the smart connector exists on the iPad Pro is because Bluetooth keyboards were not reliable, and connecting them is a pain, and trying to do it through the software and hardware just doesn't work, and just physically snapping them together is so much easier. And that's not going to change. I mean, physically plugging something in to get it to work is always going to be easier than holding it down to go into pairing mode, blah, 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 blah. 
So Apple has made some steps to improve that. For example, if you wanted to use a Apple Pencil with another iPad Pro, you simply take the lightning connector and plug it into a different iPad. And it that there's your sync right there. Oh, plugs in, connects, knows that that's the one to connect to. Problem solved. You do that with earbuds, it would be the same thing. Um, you know, whether it's the successor to that is some sort of NFC tap to sync or whatever. Uh, you know, that's the, the future we're inevitably heading to. Devices may connect with each other physically in some way, but it won't be the kinds of ports and things that we're doing now. Um, think along the terms of smart connector. Think along the lines of how you uh, how you uh, charge your Apple Watch. You know, if you look at an iPhone four or five years down the road that maybe ditches a lightning connector, that's how it's going to work. I feel like we're going to keep the lightning connector a lot longer than that, but yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think you're right, but... Uh, certainly, you would have to think that some form of wireless charging, whether it's through a smart connector or oh, that uh, comes additionally. Yes, that I mean, that, that's going. I mean, that's an inevitability. It's going to happen. Yes, it, it may it may in fact happen this year based on some of the rumors. But you know, at first I wondered uh, because when the leaks started to come out, it was why would Apple put a smart connector on the phone? And that was when all we had were keyboards for the iPad Pro. And then Apple didn't tell anybody that the uh, the smart connector works both ways, and you can actually charge through it as well. So now think about all the possibilities that opens up just in terms of not only accessories, but just charging your phone. Imagine if you had a a Mophie case or an Apple battery case, for example, that rather than sliding it into some slot and having the pass through for the headphones and all that crap. Imagine if it just snapped on magnetically and then did data and power. And now you could reroute the headphone jack anywhere you want. Now I'm going to go better than that. It's in my cup holder in my Apple car, and now CarPlay works as a byproduct of just putting it in the cup holder. Exactly. Imagine, uh, imagine a snap-on camera accessory. Uh, you know these things that you can buy now. Uh, what do they call the Allo clips or whatever mm-hmm. uh, that make that you know physically make the camera better? Well, imagine if you had like a separate digital camera thing that connected magnetically, stuck to the back of your phone, and through the transfer of both power and data, uh, allowed you to basically turn your phone into the camera that you want it to be or whatever. Uh, that's really uh, where that kind of functionality could go. Maybe not this year or next year, but as you start to think down the road, the possibilities that it opens up for accessories and stuff like that. Totally. You know, earlier you and I were were chatting a little bit, right? We were talking about earlier this morning. You and I were talking about the the iPad, and I told you I'd had an epiphany. I'd had an awakening come to me, and and basically what I was coming from and what I what I thought of was that. You know, we we talk a lot about how Target says that forecasts are down and device sales are down, and people talk about how the world is ending because because iPads aren't selling. And one of the things that occurred to me is that if it really is the the eventual goal is the this is the computer replacement that this is the future of computing. Well, the the future of computing, I mean, the past of computing is one where we don't replace our devices that frequently, right? You know, we we keep a computer for three, four, five years, and, and sometimes even more. Yeah, I, I mean, I think even Apple themselves have said that, that uh, as the iPad first came out and they were trying to figure out what the upgrade cycle was going to be, there were a lot of people, maybe even some at Apple, who expected that people were going to be upgrading them more quickly because the technology is still rapidly advancing, thinner designs, um, higher resolution screens, faster processors, more capabilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth of it is, despite the rapid advancement of the iPad in the six years that it's been around now, uh, people are not upgrading as fast as they are with their phone. 
Um, the phone. They, they weren't wrong to think that, right? I mean, the, 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 the idea that the iPad would outsell the iPhone over time, it, to, to us it sounds crazy now, but, but back then when they sold, you know, 100 million of them, um, when, when, they, when they sold, it was, it was like their best-selling product in history right out of the gate in 2010. Yeah, was, right out of the gate. Uh, the first year was a really great performance, and then the second year with the iPad 2 was astronomical. And uh, sales continued to go up at a trajectory uh, unlike any consumer product in history had ever seen. Uh, it, w- it was just out of the gate. It was a total barn burner. And since then, um, not that sales are bad, but, you know, we were hitting $25 million and a quarter or whatever. You know, last quarter they're down to just shy of $10 million. So sales have cooled off considerably, uh, but they're still selling two to three times more iPads and they are Macs. So the future of computing, at least in terms of the products that Apple sells, Mm. is iPhones and iPads. And Macs are part of that story, but they're a small part of that story compared to the amount of product that's being pushed elsewhere. Um, But you're right. I mean, you have to think about it more in terms of the upgrade cycle as a traditional PC. I mean, even when there were rapid advancements being made in the PC market, you know, I can remember in the 90s and, and uh, 2000s uh, on, the, on all sides, whether you were on Apple or if you had an IBM compatible back in the day, you know, whatever, um, people were upgrading their computers every three, four, five, six years. Um, and by the time, by the tail end of that five or six years, holy smokes, you were running an old machine because, you know, things were just the, the, the processing power was growing exponentially. Uh, nowadays, if you're in 2016 and you own a tw- 2011 MacBook Pro, you're okay. Uh, you're you're probably running um, El Capitan. Uh, you're probably uh, running all the latest software. It might be a little slow doing this and that and whatever. It might run a little hot. It's a little thick. But uh, computers just aren't evolving at that same pace these days. And I mean, a 2008, a 2009 Mac is probably the one you want to, to stop using so much. <laughs> right. So... You know, I, I mean, I think that uh, computers have matured to a point where uh, it's not uncommon, especially today, for people to hang on to it for a long time. It's always been that way with PCs because they're expensive. And I think the hope was that because iPads are a little more affordable, that it would, you know, take on the netbook market. Remember those netbooks? <laughs> uh, I've still got two around here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that market kind of fizzled out. The iPad remains. And you see Apple, interestingly, going in the opposite direction. We were talking about earlier about the average selling price of the iPad going up. Apple's actually saying, well, we want to target more of that premium market, that high-end market, the tablet user who wants to do uh, th- th- have the type of experience that only Apple can offer. And... You know, if somebody owns an iPad 2 today, yeah, this it might be a little slow. The screen released in 2011, right? Yeah, I mean, the screen is a low resolution, stuff like that. But uh, most people are going to be fine with that. My guess is that the iPad 2 is is about 15 percent of all the iPads still around in use today. They were still selling it up until what was it? Halfway through last year, they stopped selling it finally, right? Yeah, but the people that were buying those were were largely institutional customers, right? Those were things that that were schools and people like that. Um, you know, you you buy the same one so that you support the same model across everything. Yeah, I, I mean, people like you and I are not typical consumers, and and certainly our listeners are not typical consumers, and so it's important to keep that kind of stuff in mind because 
I might upgrade my iPad every year, every two years. You might upgrade your iPad every year, every two years. Nah. But Joe Public uh, is not upgrading their iPad as much as they're upgrading their iPhone. People are generally upgrading their phone about every two years, and they're upgrading their Mac about every five years, and the iPad's only been around for six. Right. So we don't the really iPad know. upgrade cycle feels like four to five years. I think that's right. And I, and I think for the price, I think if you spend $500, $600 on an iPad – um, and you get four or five years out of it, I think that's a pretty good investment. Hmm. So let's let's think about this, right? If if it's six years into the life of the iPad, and we just said that the iPad cycle is is four to five years, think think that there are probably 200 million, 225 million, something like that iPad users out there. So that means that that we're looking at coming up a huge sales reporting, aren't we? I mean, this is the time where people are going to start recycling or start upgrading their devices, yeah? Hard to say. Um, how many of those people that bought the first-gen iPad were early adopters who then bought the iPad 2, for example? Um, okay, but even so, we're at six years, and that's that's the f- the uh, the five-year. Right, and then, you know, so you there, the there are people who might be upgrading more frequently. The, the more interesting number and the more important number, as opposed to overall sales, is active user base, active install base. Uh, people that are still on their iPad and and want to upgrade and get a new one. You know, I wonder how many people bought an iPad and toyed around with it and used it for a couple of years, use it off and on, but don't really feel a need for another tablet. I mean, well, I'm just thinking about it in terms of of uh, you know being current and being able to do the things that iOS 10 will do. Right? iOS 10 is not compatible with the original iPad. It's not compatible with the iPad 2. It's right. not compatible with the iPad 3. It's not compatible with the first iPad Mini. Right? right, those are the iPads that are, are six, four, you know, six, five, four years old. Right, right. So that's that's you got to think about sixty million so iPads that aren't going to get the latest iOS release, right? No, I know. Like people, like my parents have an iPad too, and they just won't care. They won't even know. <laughs> right. So so if there are sixty million, I'm just making the number up, kind of, but it's something like that, iPads that aren't going to get upgraded, uh, updated rather with iOS ten, and there are people who like your parents who are not going to notice, not interested, whatever, as long as it still plays video for them, right? Um, so, so that's like 40, 45 million that we could see just as a part of the updates, people that do want to go get it. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have people that are updating. The, the question becomes, have we, and I hate to use these terms, but you know, this is the kind of stuff that gets tossed around for the purposes of discussion. Have we reached peak iPad? Have we... You know, are we going to see another 25 million unit quarter for the iPad? And that question is not about upgrades. Really, what that question is going to boil down to is new customers that grow the platform. Uh, okay, so so I'm going to say this, and you tell me what you think of it. Okay. I'm going to say that we have not yet seen peak iPad, okay. but that we have seen peak iPad mini. I think that's fair. I think that for us to see iPad not only return to growth, but go to heights that we have not yet seen, you know, pushing 30 million in a quarter, 40 million in a quarter, getting to those iPhone level numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to get there, it really is going to take uh, more than just hardware changes. There's only so much they can do with the hardware in terms of bumping the speed and the screen resolution and the thinness. It really is going to come down to the software and Apple's ability to make the iPad an essential tool for people that makes it an ideal laptop replacement in ways that go beyond what it does now. 
Uh, Apple has made strides in this area in terms of multitasking, connectivity, etc. But there are fundamental changes to iOS that need to be made in order to make it more powerful for daily users who, let's say you're the type of user who needs your Mac you know, 25% of the time and you use your iPad 75% of the time. That's fine, but you still need a Mac for that 25% of the time. To make that an essential tool, you need to have an iPad that can completely replace your Mac and you never look back. Right, and that's that's where we're going here, right? That's the point of of the iPad Pro and the commercials and advertisements that tell us that it is a computer. You know, b- before we were saying that we thought of it like the phone, the iPad, and the computer, and it was the different screen size, and maybe some days you needed a truck, the computer, and some days you needed a car, the iPad, whatever. The... I, I, the it seems like the new strategy is that the iPad is a computer, the Mac is also a computer. It's no longer the product that's stuck there in the middle, right. shoehorned between the two, Right. Yeah, I, I think that there there are two segments that are not going to be moved. There are guys like you and me that are always going to need a Mac or a traditional computer. Oh, I'm looking to get away from that. Well, I, I would like to as well, but I think I think the reality is you and I are always going to need access to a Mac at some point, even if it becomes that 75-25 split I was talking about where you can do most of your computing on your iPad. You're still going to need a Mac for something, and that's not going to change. We're always going to be truck guys to some level, to use the Steve Jobs terminology. Uh and then there's those people that are just on Facebook and sending emails, and they are already at a point where the iPad for 100% of their daily computing is fine. But there's a sweet spot that is somewhere in there with you know a group of people where the iPad isn't quite there yet to fully satisfy their computing needs, but it's close. And for those people that are in that spot right now, that's really where Apple needs to be focusing its development, particularly on the software front. Um, and, you know, I've I've harped on it before, and I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I think some sort of cursor input, trackpad, mouse, whatever, on an iPad, uh, that would be completely optional and would not be fundamental to how you use the product in any way. Could Every app would still support, just like with the pencil. You can have the pencil, you can use apps with the pencil, you can use them without. Uh, if they were to introduce that in some way, I think it would go a long way in adding for connectivity, for productivity, for daily use on the iPad. I think it would make a huge difference and help to address some of those issues. Now, Apple's going to be reluctant to do it because they don't want to take away from the touchscreen experience. They feel like that's an integral way of, of using the iPad. I agree. I think the iPad should be able to be stripped down without a keyboard, without a pencil, without anything, and be used on its own. But I think that if you want to bring those elements into the experience, you should be able to do it. Just like a Mac ships with a trackpad that does not have a right-click option, but you can plug in a mouse that has a right-click if you want it. You know, uh, you, you know what the trackpad does gestures obviously that was kind of a wait a minute here what's he really saying well i mean well okay better example would be if you buy a magic mouse okay i mean still obviously you can do the two finger click etc but if you're the type of person who really wants a right click uh who i don't know is working with a salad doctors or something i don't miss right click i'm just using it as an example and i'm saying you have to cater to those people that need that kind of stuff uh, the software is not no longer the issue. It used to be you can't get the software. And unless you're talking about gaming, pretty much everything's in the cloud. Everything runs on a Mac. Everything runs on your iPad. It doesn't really matter at that point. So, in, in fact, you know, the iOS App Store is the most successful and has the highest quality apps of any platform, including Windows. You know, the iOS App Store, not the Mac App Store. R- yes. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, in terms of what's available, what you can do, et cetera, I mean, it it constantly blows my mind the kind of stuff that I can do on my phone these days that 
five years ago, 10 years ago would have required a computer with a lot of horsepower. Uh, a great example of that is Apple's iMovie is for iOS a spectacularly fantastic piece of software, it, more powerful than you could imagine uh, for considering that it fits in your pocket and you can do it in five minutes flat and then share it with the world without even touching a computer. To to imagine even five years ago to be able to do that um, with the hardware that we have in 4K, no less, um, it, it is, it's one of those things where technology kind of creeps up on you over the years and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I really am living in the future right now. Like it didn't happen overnight. It took some time and it, the, the progress was so gradual that you almost didn't realize it was happening, but it's like, we're here. I'm shooting 4k video on a phone, editing it, uploading it to the internet all while I'm out somewhere, nowhere near a wall outlet or uh, Wi-Fi connection or anything like that. It's incredible. And it doesn't cost a fortune. Right. Uh, it, it, we, we're in that future and we're going to continue. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. But to get to that, back to that iPad growth and peak iPad or whatever we want to call it, uh, the platform iOS really needs to take advantage of the screen real estate in a way that it does not currently. Okay. I, I'm just thinking in terms of sales that, that Mac sales have declined over the past two quarters. And I think it's really likely that iPad sales are going to be strong in the next couple of quarters because of that, that upgrade cycle. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking we're looking at the right time frame. It's this, this moment in time almost where we see that shift between the, the traditional laptop or desktop computer and the iPad taking over. Well, one of the rumors, because there aren't a lot of iPad specific changes in iOS 10, one of the rumors is that uh, because of Apple's development cycle and the way they do things, they're going to focus on iPad's specific changes for 10.1, 10.2, 10.3. And that might introduce kind of like how iOS 9 had a bunch of cool iPad specific features like picture in picture and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the rumor is that you might see that sort of stuff uh, with a 9.1 or something. And that also could be like, for example, let's, I don't know when a new 12.9 inch iPad Pro is coming out. Uh, it'll be a year old in October, November. Uh, if they waited until maybe then to launch a new one or maybe even early 2017, they could coincide a 9.1 alongside that. And maybe I'd heard they kind of wanted to get away from October announcements. Yeah, uh, well, I think they kind of have to this year because of the Macs that they're going to release. So I think there's going to be another event in October. This is purely speculation, but I mean, you're going to have a stacked event in September with phones and watches and all that. Um, so the expectation is that they're going to unveil new Macs in October, and that might be a good time to unveil a new 12.9 inch iPad Pro. Um, you won't see a new 9.7 inch because they just launched that uh, in early this year. But they may also wait until next year for the iPad and just let the lineup uh, sit as it is right now. But, I mean, you, you think about, okay, in terms of hardware, what could they do to improve on it? Um, obviously, you know, basic stuff like camera, processor, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, but uh, a logical progression, if they could find a technical way to do it, is uh, 3D Touch. Uh, would be something that you could potentially put on an iPad if you could do it with a larger screen. Uh, and then maybe they could do 3D Touch in a way that it works with a pencil uh, as well. Um, and you can then get 3D Touch actions maybe on icons if you're using the pencil with an older iPad or something like that, like a, the current iPad Pro. I don't know. Um, but, you know, those are the kind of logical hardware extensions that you could see in a future upgrade. I just don't see those moving the needle. I think it's really going to come from software. Right. Now, you mentioned the Apple Watch, and you and I have had this long-standing bet, right? We've talked about this since February, Yeah. Uh, whether or not Apple was going to bring out a watch with cellular connectivity. Right. 
and and we both talked about it as a this year kind of release. That's that's what the bet was around. Right. There's a report on Bloomberg that says that Apple tried and failed to add the cellular connectivity. That that they were going to go for it, but that they couldn't manage the battery life with it. Yeah, I mean the the way the report was was written, apparently Apple spoke with some carrier partners in the U.S. and Europe and told them that they want to release a Apple Watch with LTE this year. But even on an aggressive timetable, if they were to get things done, it wouldn't come out any sooner than December. So the suggestion is that Apple is probably going to wait until next year to introduce a uh, a cellular-capable Apple Watch. Um, You and I had a bet because you were thinking that they were going to do it this year, and I didn't think the technology was there yet. So... Nothing's been announced yet, obviously, but it looks like... If it's December, I'm claiming a win. That's fine. I mean, it's still technically the year. (laughs) I would be surprised if they did a December release for a number of reasons. Uh, They really want to hit, you know, Black Friday, shopping season, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Apple traditionally does not do December releases. They have done a few here and there, quietly released things, or the Mac Pro showed up at basically the stroke of midnight on December 31st just so they could uh, say that they hit that calendar year. But um, if it doesn't get announced... Uh, at an event this either September or October, it's not coming this year. The, yeah. the rumor is that the watch is going to have the, the interesting thing to me is the rumors the watch is going to have GPS, but not LTE. And as we've talked about on the show before, for those of you who don't know, uh, GPS alone is not very good. Uh, GPS alone takes a while to get a signal. It's not super reliable. Um, once it gets a lock on a signal, then it's pretty rock solid. But until you get that lock on a signal. Uh, it can take like four or five minutes, depending on your location, depending on uh, where if well, you know buildings around you, mountains. Minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, because the watch has Wi-Fi in it as well. Correct. So they can do the same thing that they did with the Skyhook database and use okay, here's our GPS location generally, and also these are the Wi-Fi networks around, and that's why it's more accurate. You are correct, but uh, the best kind of correct. <laughs> but uh, for example. You don't have GPS in your iPad. Uh, you unless you have the cellular Unless one. you buy a cellular one. It's tied to the cellular radio on the iPad. Uh, so it, there's a I reason think, for that. Think back to the original, original iPhone, mm-hmm. the very first, yep. which had the assisted GPS and used Wi-Fi to augment it and, for accuracy. And 2G. And 2G. But... If even with the uh, the 2G off, the GPS and the uh, and the Wi-Fi got you location. Uh, kind of, yeah. They got you a general area. It, it would exact. It would get you a more exact location by triangulating with cellular towers. That too, but they were using the Skyhook database of of Wi-Fi base stations and saying, "Oh, if we can see this base station, then we know that we're that close." Which is Basically. where the whole Wi-Fi tracking controversy came from. Way back when. Wait. Now we're digging deep into history. Well, that's but, that's the reason it's there. For those of you that don't remember or don't know, there was a controversy years ago when Steve Jobs was still alive, actually, uh, where it was discovered that there was a file saved on your iPhone that had a list of every known Wi-Fi network that you had ever even become, not even connected to, just been in. Just in range. range of, and the reason the data was connected, was collected, was because... Uh, because GPS is terrible is basically what it boils down to having the names of Wi-Fi networks and uh, the data that you can get from them um, that is, that is carried in the signal that is being sent out uh, allows you to get a faster signal uh, and a faster connection to know where you are. So when we talk about Wi-Fi helping with location, that's what we're referring to skyhook technology that does this. 
uh, what your iPhone does and your iPad, if you have a cellular model, is a combination it's of basically the human equivalent, right? Of standing on a street corner and me asking you, "Well, what can you see around you?" Right. And you can pick out what you see as landmarks, and I can say, "Okay, I know where you are." And and all of these methods are far from perfect. Um, if you are on cellular data, but you're in a remote area where you're only connected to one tower. Uh, it can basically say you're within range of, you know, 50 miles or something like that. That's like when you open up uh, maps on your phone and then before it narrows down your location, it gives you a huge broad n- network. So if you're in an area with poor cellular connection or whatever, uh, then that's not very reliable. If you're in an area with no Wi-Fi, that's not very reliable because then it can't use the skyhook stuff. So and GPS takes like four or five minutes to get a lock. So that's why Apple uses all of this technology to not only get you an accurate GPS or location signal, but also to get it as fast as possible. So that's why when you open up maps on your phone, you get the, the thing instantly. Whereas if you have an old uh, TomTom or something uh, in your car, it might take you know a while to get a signal. And some watches, like um, I I tested out a Fitbit Surge years ago, and basically yeah, my daughter wears that. Basically, what it would do is. Uh, getting a general idea of where you were, and as it narrowed down your location based on GPS, it would use the motion tracking and stuff to assume your pace and your distance. And basically, it was making a guess until it got a GPS lock. And when you look at a device like the Microsoft Band, uh, I've talked about this before as well, I would go for a run, and I would be 10 minutes into my run, and the the Microsoft Band still didn't have a lock. So the fact that this year's Apple Watch is rumored to have GPS but not cellular is significant, because it will be interesting to see how Apple addresses these technical issues. Maybe Apple has something up their sleeve that's new and proprietary that uh, we don't know about. Maybe they're going to use the stuff we talked about, Skyhook and GPS, without uh, cellular data. Maybe they lied to everybody, or maybe the the scoop was wrong, and they will have a uh, uh, cellular data Apple Watches here. We don't know until they announce it, but I think that's an interesting one to keep an eye on because the reliability of the GPS may not be up to people's expectations who use an iPhone uh, if it does not have cellular data. So, are you still wearing your Apple Watch? Yeah, I wear it every day. Okay, Mikey doesn't wear his. Do you? I don't. Yours. I, I don't really wear mine. Of course, I'm I'm wearing a bunch of other watches at the at the moment. You know, if you look at my Instagram, for example, you'll see that I have a different watch on practically every day. But the Apple Watch just hasn't been quite as compelling to me at this moment. I'm I'm hopeful that with WatchOS three that it gets there. And I was thinking about why this is. What what is it about the Apple Watch that hasn't uh, hasn't resonated with me? Hasn't worked for me to make it a daily wear, and one of the things I realized is is one of the things that we talked about really early on last year about, I don't know, 70, 75 episodes ago, which is that the, the story of explaining the Apple Watch mm-hmm. and what it is and why someone should wear one is not an easy story to tell, right? If, if I ask you, what is an iPod? You're going to tell me it's a thousand songs in your pocket, right? Right. You know, it's, it's the idea that you can carry your music collection or at least a lot of your music collection with you. And if I ask you what an iPhone was when it first launched, you'd, you'd tell me the three things, right? Yes. You remember those three things? Yeah, a uh, uh, widescreen iPod, a uh, revolutionary communications device, and a uh, – uh, what was the third one? Jeez, I'm, I'm really – A phone? Thank you. <laughs> a phone, <laughs> which is funny because that's <laughs> the one thing you would forget now because you don't use it as a phone anymore. It was, it was an iPod. It was the internet – with a web browser, yeah. and it was the phone with visual voicemail. Right, and now nobody uses it as a phone, really. 
practically, yeah. I mean, of the time on your iPhone, how much of that is used as a phone? Uh, most of it is spent waiting on hold with customer <laughs> service reps for Time Warner Cable or AT&T. But, uh, but even then, right, the, uh, the iPhone did not take off until uh, they added the App Store and made it more affordable. Well, the very best feature about the phone part of the iPhone was the visual voicemail part. Correct. Which was incredible, Which and I love it. Was was Still. Well, yeah, was great. Um, but that's not but that's not that wasn't product. compelling to everyone else to go buy one. It was when there was the app store. Having the full web and the the novelty of the touchscreen interface device was and exciting. Three G data and well, yeah. not, remember three G data? <laughs> well, three G data for the second gen model. But with the first gen model, the novelty of being able to browse the web and a touchscreen and all that, which is kind of funny to look back at now since we take it for granted. But at the time, it was exciting. It was like, holy oh, yeah. holy moly, I can't believe I can do this. But it wasn't until the second gen model came along with faster 3G, 3G data, more availability of 3G data throughout the country, you know, better rollout by the carriers as well. And also more affordable than the first gen model when it launched. They cut it by like 200 bucks and they had on contract subsidies for the 3G model. And like you said, uh, uh, the, we were talking about the addition of the App Store as well. Um, there were there were a lot of things that they fixed in the second gen model that made it a more compelling product. And then for the next three four years, you know, the marketing campaign was there's an app for that. Uh, again, it's it's easy to forget how novel the idea of apps were at the time, but because you take it for granted now. But then it was like, oh, really? There's an app that can do that? This is really cool. And so that was an right. entire ad campaign. Now you just kind of assume, oh, does it have apps? Whatever. So, right. But the original thing is that it was a very simple, easy to explain device, right? The story of the device was easy to understand. Well, I mean, you can look at the first iPod and that had its share of problems. It had a physical click wheel. It only worked on Firewire. It only was compatible with a Mac. The iPod didn't take off until they had introduced iTunes for PC and allowed connectivity with a PC over USB. Uh, well, there was Firewire for, for PCs at the time. Right. But you couldn't connect it to a PC. You had to use it with a Mac. The Apple retail store sold a FireWire PCI card made by Belkin that people could put in their PCs. And it was the uh, third-party music manager app, and I'm blanking on the name God. of it. But there was there was a Windows PC app that was not iTunes. Okay, well, I don't count that as Windows compatibility. If you're installing they a They sold card. it in the Apple Store like that for Windows users. <laughs> Anyhow, I rest, I rest my <laughs> but case. The, the greater point, the greater point is that we had a story for the iPod, and we had a story for the iPhone, and they were both simple to explain. But they didn't catch right? on until the right tweaks were made. That's an important part of the story here. Okay, but I, I would tell you that, first of all, the story for the Apple Watch was very murky at launch. I agree. It was really unclear what the hell this thing is for and who it should appeal to and what problem it was solving and why. Correct. I agree completely. I still don't know what at, at launch what that story should be. I can't figure it out. Well, I'll tell you what the story is, and you know, I'm not going to toot my own horn here, but the truth of it is – but, Come on, smart guy. <laughs> well, when it, before it was announced, you know, you and I have talked a lot about, and I've tested a lot of these watches, and what I've said all along is having glanceable information on your wrist without having to interact with it is the best user experience for a wearable device, period. Okay, not. but then why is a mini iPhone with a honeycomb pattern of apps all over it that? That is the failure that Apple did, where they want they thought that maybe replicating the success that the App Store had for both the iPhone and the iPad would translate to the watch. The truth of it is, the third-party apps, not only do they not run well, but it's not really functional or practical to say, 
hmm, I want to check my email. And instead of taking out your phone and checking your email, holding up your wrist, pressing a button, going to a honeycomb interface, tapping on the app icon, waiting for it to load because it has to load all the data from your phone on the first gen watch OS one, right? Uh, and it takes forever. And then now your email is up and now you look at it. Oh, I want to reply to this email. Well, guess what? You got to pull out your phone now anyhow. So the, the logical process of that was never going to be a success for a number of reasons. It has it's and it's not just that the fact that it's slow or whatever. People aren't going to want to be dictating emails to their wrists all the time. At some point, you just got to pull out your phone. So it needs to. It needs to get away from the app mentality. The apps are not a bad thing. I'm not sitting here and saying that they should not have apps for it. But Apple fundamentally misunderstood how people were going to use the watch. And that's where I kind of had the right idea. And, and you can see that now with watchOS 3 and where they're going. The best example I can give of that is the uh, uh, digital touch messages. Digital touch was viewed as such a crucial element of the watch that up until this upcoming release of watchOS 3, the side button was dedicated to finding friends on there and drawing things and sending it to them, which, number one, is way too much interactivity with the watch. you got to press yeah, a button, rotate the dial, select someone's name, and then you have a one-and-a-half-inch screen to draw what? Well, and I was always afraid that if I was touching on the contact that I was going to end up calling right. them because that's the experience from the phone is you touch on a contact and it dials them. So you pull up digital touch and it's impressive to children, I guess, when they want to play with your watch. But other than that, what can you draw on a 1.5 inch screen? A smiley face? Um, a phallus? I mean, there's not. That, that was the one I was going You don't really for. have much in the way of options. And so that right there encapsulates what Apple got wrong with the watch at launch. That doesn't mean it was a bad product. Speaking of which, I, I apologize for having your wife in my contacts for that. <laughs> it does not mean that it was a bad product, and it doesn't mean that it was not a success in what it aimed to do. It's Apple offered a lot of the right stuff, and the number one thing, I think, being the complications. They, they nailed that stuff. Well, and that's that's where this goes next, right, is that instead of having to consume all this stuff through a large number of apps and and honeycomb interface and panning around the honeycomb interface and all of this stuff you, you, you now we're going to consume the information through the complications on watch faces which is the way it should have been all along glanceable quickly accessible information period and so now with the watch os3 suggestions for apps apple if you're developing an app for watch os3 suggest that any app, even if it has no data to display, should offer a complication so that users can customize it. The reason for that is that is the easiest way to launch an app. And if you want to launch an app all the time, you can have a dedicated icon there. So now with watchOS 3 coming out, and it's great. I've been testing it. It's running rock solid now. I'm real happy with it. Uh, with Every single first-party app for the Apple Watch has a complication, including ones that don't show any information, like Find My Friends. If you really want to check out Find My Friends on your watch and you're the one person that applies to, you can have a complication for it sitting on your watch. And you can access it without having to go to the honeycomb interface, without having to do anything other than raise your wrist and tap once in the corner. Uh, See, but that makes Find My Friends actually useful. Correct. It makes everything more useful. Um, it, one of the best complications on there that Apple didn't have before watchOS 3 and they have now is a music complication. And it's great for a number of reasons. Number one, you can now tap it and access music. Number two, you can, if you have a larger complication, see the name of the song currently playing, the artist, etc. Or even if you have the tiny little app complication in one of the watch faces that just has the corners, it has a little circle that goes around the note that tells you the status of the song, how far you are into the song. Just like it does on the iOS interface when you're scrolling through music on the left side. So you have a progress indicator, exactly. basically. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it's very simple, and a lot of people are going to hear that and scoff and go, well, I don't need that. 
Great. Then put a different complication there. Now they have separate comp- separate complications for both weather conditions and temperature. So before you could only get the temperature, which is worthless if it's raining out. Now you can have one weather complication for temperature and one for conditions, which again, that's great. You may not care. You may n- never leave the house and you don't need that information. The customization of it and the glanceable the glanceability of it make it so much better. That is just the way it is. And then there are all kinds of behind the scenes things like apps running in the background that uh, use a little bit more battery life and make them load a little quicker. Those are the technical things that help the experience. But really the, where, where Apple messed this up and where they've fixed it with watchOS 3 is understanding how people are going to use the, the app. You should be on that honeycomb interface as little as possible. That uh, That's not saying they should get rid of it. That's not saying that it was a mistake to do it. Uh, the mistake was focusing on that and uh, the the 3D or I'm sorry, the uh, the touch uh, pr- whatever. Force. Force. No, 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 no. The uh, no. Uh, digital touch messages. Digital touch. Those were two crucial elements. So if we we're talking about the original iPhone, you know, uh, revolutionary communications device, the web in your pocket, you know, all the things they t- sold you on widescreen, iPod, a great phone, whatever. Those were simple things that it's like, oh, I get that. With this device, it's like, what was Apple pushing? All the apps you want. Okay, what do I really need apps on my wrist for, especially if I have to interact with them? Uh, Digital touch, something you've never used before and you don't even know that you need. And by the way, it only works with other people that own watches. So I hope they have $350 to spare so they can receive these messages from you. (laughs) You know, like, it was was so poorly thought out that anybody was going to use this feature that... Okay. Your, your parting thought, because you were really passionate about this. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's I think it's good, um, and I think that the changes that you're seeing uh, and coming along are making it better. Uh, I think the addition of GPS will be a big deal. I think cellular radio will be a big deal when it comes, if it comes this year, or next year, or whenever. Um, those are all logical progressions of it, and you know, in, on the software front, um, they've they've made huge progress. It's really just about the less you have to interact with the watch, the better. The, the less that you have to tap it, open apps, scroll through menus, go to the honeycomb interface, digital touch, whatever, uh, th- that makes it all easier and better. Yeah. So my, my last thought on this is that, first of all, you know, a few years ago, I saw a documentary about design put, made by Gary Hostwood, that uh, same, same guy that filmed Helvetica, that uh, interviewed Dieter Rams, and he talked about how you know, the design of the iPhone was beautiful, but it was, it was basically the outer shape is one thing, everything else happens through the glass screen, right? And so we interact with this glass screen that could be anything. And here we have the example of, of Apple getting what to do with the glass screen wrong, but they're able to recover because everything else about it was right. You know, the digital crown choice was the correct choice. The side button was the correct choice. Being able to do the the rotation so people wearing it on the opposite wrist, you know, these these everything else in place was, were the right decisions so that they could go ahead and make the software more simple, having learned from it. And I and I hope that those are the changes that get made on the iPad as well. I mean, it's a canvas at that point. You have a screen that can display whatever you want it to display. The hardware is there. Uh, the software needs tweaks. Uh, you know, I've heard from some people that say they don't use the digital crown, which surprises me. Um, I use it if I'm scrolling through something all the time because then my finger doesn't get in the way and I can actually read what I'm scrolling through. I think it's ingenious. 
Um, the side button I never really used before unless I was turning the watch off, but uh, now with watchOS 3, I'm using it all the time because I have my most used apps there. Uh, so like, for example, last night, um, I decided to try RunKeeper again, launching it from my watch because RunKeeper just did an update this week and they said they squashed some Apple watch related bugs. So I tested it out and it actually worked and I went for a run and it worked great. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. This concludes episode 82 of the Apple Insider podcast. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? You can, uh, read, uh, what I have to write at appleinsider.com and you can find me on Twitter at this is Neil spelled N-E-I-L. And I am at VMarks on Twitter and at VMARKSI on Instagram because someone else got my nick first. <laughs> <laughs> and if if Neil sends me a digital touch picture in the next week, I'll let you know all about it on the next week's Apple Insider Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>